We're ready. Everybody's here. All right. Um, so welcome everyone to this uh, Stronger Together Meet the Scholar series. Uh, today we're very lucky uh, and I feel very honored to be allowed to do this interview. We have uh, Bruce Kogut with us today um, and we're going to uh, start the interview. Uh, I will just do a little introduction and then I will interview or have a conversation with Bruce for about 45 minutes to an hour and then we're going to take questions. Uh, so at any point in time, feel free to uh, put questions in the chat and I'll try and, and take them perhaps as we go along, but, but uh, more likely we'll take the questions at the end. Uh, so welcome, Bruce. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Louise. Uh, let's see if I can get my slides to work here. There we go. Um, so Bruce is the Sanford C. Bernstein and Company Professor of Leadership and Ethics at Columbia University. Um, and he also has uh, an affiliation with the Department of Sociology at Columbia. Um, so he's at the Business School and at the Department of Sociology. Uh, he's also been the L.I. Lilly Chair Professor of Innovation at INSEAD and had a Chair Professorship at Wharton. He's also been on the visiting, uh, a visiting faculty position at the Stockholm School of Economics and also at the RAND Corporation. Bruce has his PhD from the Sloan School of Management at MIT and also holds an honorary doctorate from the Stockholm School of Economics. He has been a visiting scholar at numerous prestigious research institutes, including the Social Science Center in Berlin. He's been a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study in Berlin. Uh, he's also spent time at Ecole um, Polytechnique, the Santa Fe Institute, Tsinghuao uh, University and Humboldt University. Uh, at the time it was in the former East Germany. I spent, I spent um, five, and, five and a half months there, Louise. Okay, yeah, yeah. Interesting, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, Bruce has a number of awards and recognitions, uh, and they include the Russell Sage Foundation Award. Um, he's received the National Science Foundation Award, the Distinguished Scholar Award from the IM Division of the Academy. Uh, he's also received the GIPS Decade Award uh, for his paper, Knowledge of the Firm and the Evolutionary Theory of the Multinational Corporation. He's also a holder of, of has received several prestigious research grants, including from the European Commission, the Max Planck Institute and the Carnegie Boss Institute. Uh, Bruce was the, actually the second editor of the European uh, Management Review and the founder of the INSEAD Social Enterprise Programme. He has served on several corporate and academic boards uh, and is now on the academic advisory board to the Institute Polytechnique in Paris. He has, um, he's co-leading the computational social science research at Columbia University's Data Science Institute. Um, so a lot of, of things going on. Um, and I'm sure Many of you, or most of you know already, uh, are familiar with Bruce's research. He's published more than 60 articles in top journals. He's written seven books on topics ranging from globalization, corporate governance to the internet economy, uh, as well as several book chapters. He has an amazing uh, 81,000 plus Google Scholar citations. Uh, that's really impressive. Uh, and has conducted research on a range of topics um, uh, and this is also an impressive, uh, very impressive list on global strategy, the knowledge-based view, cultural distance, foreign direct investment, uh, operational flexibility, 
real options we were talking about just a little while ago, social financial markets, uh, network dynamics in small worlds, governance, including women on boards, uh, computational social science. Um, I know that at the moment, Bruce is also working on some LM NLP applications to uh, political ideological basis, bias, sorry, in academics and to reviewing the Hawthorne experiments. He's also looking uh, currently at AI, human interactions, emotions and media. Uh, so a really um, impressive uh, background. So we are very honored and happy to have you here today, Bruce. So I'm going to stop sharing my slide so we can uh, have a conversation. <clears throat> right. So we also You failed to mention that you and I have known each other since you were a PhD student. That's right, um, which is a long time ago. So I was at, uh, at INSEAD, I started my PhD in 2000 and was there until 2004. And so in that period, I also took a course with Bruce. So we've known each other since for a long time, many years. But it's been a while since I saw you now, so it's, it's nice to see you. Um, so we, not, we often start this interview by, um, by talking a bit about how you ended up on the academic career path. Um, and so I thought maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your you know, background, where do you come from, and how did you end up to, on a path towards pursuing an academic career? Was there something when you were growing up that kind of set you on that path, or was it a little bit accidental? How did you get there? Yeah, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I'll, but I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you the factual stuff. Uh, then we can psychoanalyze the rest as you go, as you go, as you go through. The um, born in New York City, uh, Mount Sinai, Sinai Hospital, which is about three miles from where I live right, uh, right now. So I haven't traveled very much in my life, I guess. Um, and then uh, ten months old, family moved out to California uh, with my uh, aunt Edna and Uncle Frank. We Shared all shared a house uh, with five five kids in a place called Studio City of the, the Valley. For those of you who know Los Angeles, uh, my dad was a doctor, son of a of a furrier, um, first uh, first born American. My mother was one of the eight children. Father was an illiterate dock worker, um, worked in the Brooklyn yards. Uh, um, and when my father was doing his residency in the hospital, his father-in-law was still working in the docks next to him in the same, in the same facility. So just a little you know, insight on the power of education. So I think that's what impressed me early in life was education. Um, he was a Columbia student. He had the great books of the world on his shelves. Uh, so I went to a public school, 1200 kids in my graduating class, but um, a bookshelf of, of classics uh, at, uh, at home. And that was, uh, and that was great. Um, my mother was a young executive uh, at Revlon, uh, graduate at Hunter. She, I said she was number eight of, of, uh, in the family and she was the only one who got a college education. Uh, some didn't even get a high school education. So she worked for Revlon. She could have been anything, I think. She, uh, still alive, 96, just saw her. She's glad to give anyone here advice. If you want any advice, I'll, I'll give you her number and she'll be happy to, to give you some, uh, some, uh, some help. The, um, Amazingly sharp. Um, so and she was very sweet, but also very, you know, um, eager to see her kids uh, have an education and move uh, and move forward. Um, so I went to Berkeley, um, dropped out for um, for four months. Like, not surprising if you know me that couldn't really quite work things out in directions. Like I liked everything. I think it's problems. There was a problem, Louise, as you seem to imply. 
um, went to Europe a little, uh, had a lot of fun, um, saw a lot of museums actually, um, and then came back to uh, US, uh, finished up Berkeley in still four years, uh, and then worked in Oakland. Um, I wanted to tell you this because we want to talk a bit about the social implications of being an academic. I worked in Oakland um, being a uh, community organizer around uh, consumer uh, issues. Um, and went back to LA briefly and then left to, uh, uh, to uh, do Europe again in some, in some fashion, um, which more on my own uh, now I mean learn, learn more, but also joined SEPA, um, which uh, is the school of policy at, at Columbia. Everyone there was international. Most of them were. Um, so, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a great international background. Uh, um, so um, uh, other than these, these quick trips. So I, I learned a lot from there. Um, it was smaller in those days and I was able to, uh, to pick up some, you know, attitudes on things which was important to me. Um, and then uh, I worked for a guy named Lewis Edinger. If you don't know, he's a political scientist who made a huge difference in my life. Uh, you know, sometimes people give you confidence. Uh, Reinhard Bendix did this for me back in at Berkeley. Um, and then I went to MIT. You, I think you wanted to ask me why I chose my, uh, my this direction. Because um, I really, I ran into economics when I was at Columbia, but I, since I, since I come from a practical background with my grandparents, et cetera, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, one who ran a bar in Baltimore, I can give you more colorful stories, Louise, uh, offline. The, um, you know, I think business school said to me, you can do academics, but you can also do something which is uh, 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 potentially helpful for the world. I wrote that in my essay, and I think it was wrong, <laughs> by and large. Okay. Uh, I don't think business schools, when I started, were particularly in that attitude. Um, I think they have become in that direction. So many of you are engaged in CSR and ESG and other things, but that's really over the past, what, 10, 15 years, even for the journals, I think that's true. Um, but I started mm -hmm. off with that direction, interested in doing that. Um, and then, East, then MIT sent me to East Germany and I learned that I, can, I could never win an argument trying to, trying to defend American foreign policy. Um, so I gave up. Um, at that age in my life and said, I'm never going to try to defend American foreign policy, which is a, a good decision. Um, but it was a great experience being in East Germany. It really it was not a career moving decision. Uh, I don't recommend it to you, uh, Miros, uh, to go get a job in, uh, in North Korea and try to land something better when you get back home. Um, but um, the, um, it taught me a lot about myself and about the world, which was, uh, which was really uh, helpful. Um, so is there something which I wanted to do? Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to study things which were useful. I had a love for abstraction, I think, uh, love for history. And I th actually thought business school PhD was the best place to, uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. So you were saying in your application essay, you talked about you wanted to go there because you thought that business schools were useful, but then you, you didn't think that they were at that time. Could you elaborate a bit on that? No, they're really useful to business, which is extremely important. Um, mm. And I sometimes wonder whether we have forgotten that currently. But you, you didn't have classes which were saying, you know, um, what business can do to to help the to help people, you know, to help you know welfare of people, or to move, you know, to help us understand issues. Uh, I mean, we have to ask ourselves the question: 
why are there so few political scientists at business schools? Um, mm. And that's essentially because I think we have an instinct that talking politics or studying politics inside of business schools is actually rather treacherous. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, I, and, we, and it is, you know. Um, you know, if you looked at European business schools, it always struck me that they were more right-wing than American business schools. That includes NCIAD as well. It's changed, mm. but um, that's because in Europe, socialism was a real alternative, you know. Uh, there was a right and a left. There was governments, there was arguments for government control over, over industry, which are real arguments. The U.S. had our arguments, but it was often, you know, a lot of noise. But generally, it's a fairly middle-of-the-road kind, of, uh, kind of country. Um, but have people come in, faculty, et cetera, and talk politics, particularly in this, what was a more polite American culture about you don't speak politics uh, if you mm -hmm. want to, if you go to a dinner party, um, you still find these things being done and you cannot talk about change without talking about politics. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so I mean, sorry, why did you choose to get to MIT? I mean, you could have gone to other schools. I wanted more math. Um, I felt yeah. math was missing in my education. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and I got a lot of math. <laughs> That's one thing at MIT. <laughs> I'm sure at MIT, yeah. And I relied yeah. upon, I want to tell you this, because uh, you have uh, Tim Fulter here who uh, knows a bit of my uh, history. I, I, my roommate uh, was a guy named Nalin Kulatilaka from Sri Lanka. He, he, we've been friends forever since then. Um, but it was just a great experience because it was 15 people in the whole school who were PhDs in every year. And, uh, it was working with, with other people that I learned a lot. My classes were great. Teachers, faculty were fantastic. Uh, but mm -hmm. um, I've always been a good learner, if you wish. Uh, and it helps to have people who, who want to help you learn as well. So that was, mm -hmm. that was wonderful. Absolutely. That sounds great. Um, so what was the topic of your PhD? And, and how did that topic come about? Well, did you get um, some use of this map that you? I think I just wanted to well, get out of these. You know, I, I, I got this money from the U.S. government. I was, you know, I didn't have any res financial resources, um, and the stipendium was pretty small. I didn't realize we could have, you know, you know, that eventually it would become economically interesting to be a PhD student. You should laugh at me, but it's not. But actually, it's it's pretty cushy you know, compared to mm -hmm. to what it was. Um, and um, so I was just walking down the hallway of the Infinite Tunnel. Uh, in, uh, in MIT, for those of you who know the, the MIT building. And, uh, and this is, you know, go do something in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union and that kind of stuff. There was a Soviet Union then. And this is after my first, first year and it was a great year, but I was just totally, you know, wasted by all the effort it, it took. You know, I went to class one day and, and I noticed that I was wearing two belts. And I, uh, I, you know, I was just, you know, so exhausted. So, um, the, um, so I, uh, I said, sure, that's like fun. And they gave me a stipendium. I could study German. I could uh, go out to Germany, to Germany where I took some, a class. Met, very useful because I met my wife, my wife there, uh, which was uh, somewhat important for me over uh, the course of uh, these decades. Um, so, um, you know, I came for the math and all that, uh, all that training, but still looked around a little bit more, perhaps than the usual MIT student for other things to, uh, to do, particularly in the international area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then you ended up going to the Stockholm School of Economics from there. So how did, uh, yeah. how did you end up there? Right. So actually, I finished my thesis there, which was on the international trade system 
of uh, of um, of, of uh, communist countries. Um, built a little bit on a book by a guy named Frank Pryor. For those of you know who know know history, Frank Pryor was was the uh, on the famous bridge, the length of bridge between East Germany and West Germany, and he was he was caught by the Russian. He was he was arrested by the by the East Germans. They did a trade for Gary Powers, who was shot down a U two plane. Um, so uh, I guess maybe I, was, I read his book because I wanted to find out more about him. It was influenced by the book. Um, and it had to do with contracts, because that's what people talked about then. I had Don Lassard for my primary advisor, and a guy named Mike Piori was also on my uh, committee. Uh, Mike's an amazing, amazing guy. I just saw him yesterday. Um, and Don did work on stuff that's just still done. Is like, what kinds of contracts do you choose to um, uh, which solve certain problems. The problem might be if you invest in a, in a country, they might, you know, uh, you know uh, nationalize your property. Uh, so how do you, so you don't want to put in equity. What else, what equity like contracts can you write, um, uh, which give you certain properties which are useful. As we all know from negotiation theory, you try and make the pie larger. So contracts were able to diversify risk from the country and allow you to get some uh, percentage of return from the uh, from the revenues or however you want to you know write the contract. So that I applied that to East German trade. That's what I did. Um, as someone told me, if you chose Japan, you would have been famous. But if you chose East Germany, really not that many people cared, uh, <laughs> except for the Rand Corporation, which is I I I'm actually, I let it stand in there for historical reasons, which was kind of a spy, uh, a spy operation located in Santa Monica, California, near where I, where I lived. So that's why it was of interest to me. Stockholm School of Economics, my God, you know, um, those Swedes, those Scandinavians, Louise, you know, they are tricky people, you know. They, uh, okay. And I'll tell you why. You go to work, everyone's wearing, you know, no one wore ties, casual work. And then they invite you back home and everyone's wearing a tie, you know. Um, this international international business. We love the world. You go back in for Christmas. They have Christmas trees with their national flags all stuck into their into their trees. That's so, true. It's true, <laughs> especially the Swedes. You know, which are the they're the worst of the of the whole of the whole bunch. Um, but they were, you know, it's such a great experience, and it's nice to make money. God, it was lovely to make some money. It wasn't a lot, um, and um, the um, and uh, the gate was. Uh, they made me teach a lot. I, uh, if you want to learn to teach and make a thousand mistakes, I made all thousand. But Sweden in those days was far away from the U.S., so no one heard about it until two years later. By that time, I had a job in the U.S., so I, I got, I snuck through. Um, and there was just great people, you know. I just, you know, Gunnar Hedlund, Louis, uh, maybe you knew him. Uh, people who were stand, you know, Europeans of a certain generation would know how interesting a man he was. Uh, and uh, it's, it was a very strong tied to Europe for me for many years. Uh, I used to go back quite often to, uh, to work there, uh, uh, including later when I met Udo. Udo came later. Udo Zander came later on the whole, on the whole thing. But great experience. And, uh, uh, but then I eventually went back to the, uh, to the US. Now, since I mm -hmm. see Aline here, um, I will say that one of the great things of going to giving a talk at Wharton uh, which is where I took the job. I was offered at Warden, I was offered at, at Michigan. Um, and uh, my wife-to-be uh, said, I don't know where Michigan is. Uh, so she said, uh, 
and uh, she said, "Has me in New York." And I said, "The closest I can get to New York is is Philadelphia." So she said, "Go," she said, "Go, go there." But in the audience was a, a woman named Erin Anderson, who gave me advice in my thesis, kind of theory and advice. And for the rest of the rest of the time, I knew Erin. Uh, she was always giving me this advice about how to lead my career and do things correctly. So Erin uh, was a great, uh, you know, became kind of she that. She was very good at giving advice. Yeah. She was great, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, okay. I forgot. Great you advice, PhD student. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you ended up working with Udo Sander later on, you said. Um, and of course, some of your most cited papers are actually with Udo in Org Science in 92, the knowledge of the firm combinative capabilities and the replication of technology. And you also have the Org Science page for knowledge and the speed of transfer and imitation of organizational capabilities. Um, so how did those papers come about and how did your co-authorship with Udo come about? Because like now you are then at Wharton. Yeah, like how most people who know me know that I, I like to uh, usually do the best work uh, around five o'clock uh, uh, over a beer. And uh, Udo had the same, uh, the same habit. Um, so, um, and, uh, but Udo, I might have to say something, you know, Udo is just the most, most remarkable person I've met, you know. Uh, you know, his family is from, uh, uh, from, from Northern uh, Europe, uh, was in the German part of what is now in uh in poland um he uh family had you know an estate etc his father had a very modest job in stockholm um but he's had to, he wanted the kids to get the same education that you know a, a someone would get if they lived in germany of, of, a, of a certain time so he learned how to waltz he could play the violin um he could ride horses i mean uh the guy who's just i mean whatever you you know whatever's social skill of the highest level, you know, was, was required. Udo had that person. So one time when I went to a conference, my mother-in-law came, who was German, and I was just suffering having a dancing the waltz with her. And all of a sudden, Udo came over and danced with her the rest of the night and saved you know, my whole my whole family relationship. So uh, Udo was just uh, remarkable. Um, and he had seen, um, uh, he'd gone to this conference out in California, Berkeley, where a uh, city Winter had spoken. It was run by David uh, Teese. Um, and uh, a number of people spoke in that, including uh, a remarkable guy named uh, Dick, uh, Dick Rimelt, among other, other people. Um, and um, he, uh, he had seen this presentation that Dick did, which became uh, a chapter in, in David Teese's book, which talked about technology transfer and uh, uh, from Everett Rogers, and also talked about um, some, a lot of clever things that said, of course, always always talks about and writes about. Um, but he also talked about, about, about knowledge uh, on that. So I'd already picked it up a little bit in the work on joint ventures, which I had done, um, and a little bit on the tacitness side of things. Uh, in fact, I had read, just read, when I was doing my thesis at, at, um, at Stockholm that first time, the, um, I had read, just read their book on the evolutionary theory, uh, which I think like for many people at that time um, was an interesting, you know, coming together org theory and and uh, and economics, um, so it had impressed me. Uh, and they had already talked about these issues of routines and tacit knowledge and et cetera. So you know, one thing about the Stockholm School of Economics, they had this great access to business, so we were able to run these interviews with extremely high response rates. 
um, about the, about these you know these Roger-like measures of of diffusion, um, and uh, we were able to do it with items and creating scales and that kind of stuff. Something which I think people you know don't still underestimate a lot is the value of creating good psychometric scales for using things. You know, um, and econ economics is doing a little bit better. It's still so bad at creating scales. I mean, just look at short digression of the stuff being done on the routinization done by uh, artificial intelligence put out by the Census Bureau, used by a lot of economic studies, the great studies, often they just choose one item, you know, which mm -hmm. could be represent something. They had no idea of scaling of using uh, of using things. Now I don't mm -hmm. want to embarrass Eileen again, but I will now quote something which Erin did tell me, and that was she always says, I never understood, she said, why people use these fancy econometrics to deal with all these problems when if they just had good data and good measurements, a lot of these problems would actually go, uh, go away. Um, so we hit upon that early and, um, and I had good advice from people like Aaron and other people talking about scales, how to do these measurements. Uh, and that's what I think was important for us. Uh, wasn't just the ideas which are known and highly cited, but it also was the empirics. The empirics came along with the ideas they were not done separately. Mm. Um, so we knew we were going in that direction at that time. Um, took us four years to publish the first paper, took us um, about four years to publish the second paper. We had terrible arguments with people, but you know, data helps, you know, so, um, so we had that uh, in, in our hands. That's true. So when you said four years, was that, I assume it, you went to several journals, I don't know if you have some you know, advice, with with science, some the of the young scholars who are listening in to in terms of yeah, publishing. Um, yeah. Um, have faith. I, I'm probably, uh, um, you know, I, many of the papers I had took a long time to be accepted, e even in the state of the same journal. Um, I get a little frustrated. Ed editors has always been a lifetime trait, so I have to deal with co-authors who test they don't write that, Bruce. Take that away, you know, that stuff <laughs> out of the frustration. It's good advice not to not to do that. Um, so the uh, first one was four years. Um, which was a little bit too long, but it came out probably better written than it was when it went in. Uh, and Ari had a lot of faults sometimes, a little, a little bit, you know, um, you know, not uh, sometimes not by the book, um, and which could be aggravating, but also could be fantastic because he he got a lot of more exploratory ideas, and it was not just exploitation, which so many journals go for, but also exploration, which. Uh, which he had published, by the way. Ari is the one who published that article by Jim March, uh, mm. which I guess was the number 15 article rather than the number 16 article. So, uh, so Ari was, Ari was important for that, that article as well. Mm. For the empirical work, the biggest problem we had was that lots of people, reviewers don't know statistics. We weren't doing very hard statistics. Um, we we're doing duration models, which was still not particularly well known. Um, and you could prove to people that when you take an expectation that having a constant within the expectation or taken out to multiply the expectation is the same thing because the constant is not, is not a, a random variable. And you can write this down arithmetically and you still would not win your argument with reviewers because um, they were, they were onto other, other things. So there's a lot of ideology in, in, in fields which is important to, uh, to, to think about. Mm, um, interesting. But we persisted. But Louise, I'll tell you the article I like the most we did together. That was the article on East Germany. So uh -huh. 
And that was a little, uh, and Woody Palo uh, told me he likes the one he likes the, uh, the most. And uh, Woody's not usually kind to business school uh, articles. Uh, so, um, and we spent, and I said, I already known about the site, the size factory thing. But you know, Udo and I had so much fun visiting the size, uh, going back to size just after the collapse of the wall. Um, and we uh, went to their archives and we came up with these patent measures to compare things uh, on it. Um, so uh, it was published in the American Sociological Review, uh, never a high citation article, um, but it really is, it's, it's, I think it's, it's such an interesting opportunity to look at big country split, you know, with a, with a company uh, on one side of the border and the other side of the border and then they come mm. together. It's like a perfect natural experiment. Uh, we really, we had fun running up that whole, uh, that whole thing. Um, it, it sounds fun too, to go and actually collect the data there, right? We spend so much time now just in front of the computer, but actually going there and getting your hands dirty in a sense with the data. And talking to all the East Germans who just got absorbed by West Germany, you know, how they felt about it. So yeah. it was pretty, pretty fascinating. Sounds great. I will go back and read that paper. It sounds great. Um, so you arrived at Wharton then. That must have been quite a change, having been in Sweden. And yeah. Um, now you're a junior faculty, and you were saying you'd you've done your thousand mistakes teaching at uh, the Stockholm School of Economics. Yeah. So then I went on to other mistakes. So that's all. You know, we did, we did different kinds of mistakes. Um, so uh, yeah. good things too. Uh, Wharton was a uh, a, uh, just like Columbia uh, was for me when I came came here, um, was this that kind of a low point? Maybe um, couldn't weren't it didn't wasn't its reputation of before. Uh, you know, management departments are always problematic about because they're dispersed and there's potential for fighting, and they never at a stable equilibrium often. Um, so you had to go through all that. There was a Peter Lorraine, who was a Norwegian guy, who ran it. Uh, Peter's was a business person actually eventually became the head of IMD and truly truly became a business person of education with uh, selling his business to uh, Siebes in, in China. So he really was a, uh, but then we built a great team of people. We built, you know, a guy named Dan Raff came, you know, who I, who and I, he and I were, were PhD buddies that uh, back in MIT. Um, and, um, and that was a great thing. Uh, serious, serious person in business history, economic history. Uh, you know, Dan Leventhal mm -hmm. came. Dan's incredible. You know, uh, we had, um, you know, uh, Connie Helfat come to us, uh, who was, who was such a great buddy, um, and uh, and she did such wonderful work on the persistence of R and D. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And then Sid, of course, among other, other folks. So. Uh, the places came together nicely, and that was a very positive experience. And then we attracted all these good PhD students uh, who came to the place. Um, Sejin is one of them. Sejin was just, you know, just he just speaks honor. You know, you you used to know he's a classic neo-Confucian scholar. You know, um, yeah. following his code, doing his work. Uh, so, um, so I really admired that. You know. And was yeah. happy for it. And other ones too. You mentioned me. You know, all of us who were at Warden were lucky to have each other. I think, but I think also very lucky to have those PhD students. It was just a great, you know, great mm. experience. Yeah. So, so Cjin, of course, you as you know, was interviewed also in this series, and he mentioned that he was amazed by your intellectual diversity and 
and uh, he, he thought it was great to have been inspired by you. Um, and now you're talking about uh, also being inspired by PhD students. And I know working with PhD students means a lot to you. So tell us a bit about uh, your work with PhD students. Well, this guy named Mackadaw came uh, by uh, Rick, you know, and Rick was feisty as me, you know, uh, probably still as feisty as me. I just learned that he's got this new YouTube channel thing, where, uh, which I got to check out. Uh, there's a, you know, uh, you know, something to look at for sure. Uh, and Rick, you know, um, he came in with his letters from Nobel Prize winning economist saying, this guy walks on ice, you know, um, that's, that's pretty good, you know, but thin ice, you know, sometimes too, and, and water sometimes and all that stuff. So uh, um, just so well trained and uh, such a, you know, and it's clear why he came there, or Andy Spicer, or, you know, Paul Almeida, you know, Michelle Ginneman, who I absolutely uh, adored and, and adore. I'm still mean close, you know, close friends. It's just Anka later on. I'm, I'm missing people along the way, Jay Song and all, all these all these folks. But you know, um, and then other people had other PhD students. It was a fairly large program compared to what we have else elsewhere at CBS. So um, I think we put together, I, I'm not responsible for it. I think we put together in this crazy management department a number of PhD classes, which were good. And the school was very serious about its PhD program. Um, there was a guy named, Aline, uh, uh, you think I'm pitching to you right now, but it's true. Uh, a lot of people took Hubert Gatillon's class. They Jim mentioned that. But we did send our students to Hubert because he taught econometrics and how to do it. You know, at MIT was just like, you know, equation after equation, and then you guys go figure it out, you know? But actually having someone, you know, have you walk through it was, uh, was really great. And I should point out to you that we, when Harbir Singh and I did the paper on culture, we started off with uh, Hubert's, uh, um, uh, you know, hand-coded hand, hand uh, uh, algorithms for doing uh, logit analysis, which was not in Don Green's package yet. So, uh, he, he taught he taught all of us a, a lot a, a lot too so it was it was a great experience to be at uh, to be at Wharton it gave me a lot of opportunity as well hard to leave it took me three years that's great yeah I did econometrics with with uh, Uber as well in Seattle because of right right Aaron yeah. and Uber moved to Seattle yeah so they've been spreading good things everywhere. Um, so you were you were a junior faculty member at Wharton. Are there you know we also have junior faculty who join these talks. Are there is are there things that you that you wish you had known then that you know now that perhaps other junior faculty could take uh, away? Yeah, I mean, be patient. Um, I got a little fed up uh, at one point because some was a lot of turmoil. Which I won't you know I don't want to spend the time talking about the turmoil part, but it was a lot of turmoil going on. It's part of it had to do with gender issues, which were fairly severe at the department when uh, as a junior faculty uh, member, people didn't know really how to deal with those things uh, too, too well. Um, so I just took off a member uh, to, I went, of course, that's when I met Udo and that's when my first daughter was born in Stockholm. So I took off and those days the clock didn't start, the clock was still running, but it was the best spent year I, I, ever, I ever took. Um, Saying no is critical. Uh, some of the faculty here at Columbia are really good at that. I think they've gotten smarter and wiser uh, on that, but say no, you know, sounds good, say no. You know, the more tempting it is, say no. You know, just stay in your, just do your work, 
do the teaching, you know, move forward. Uh, uh, that's the uh, that's the advice. Lyle, be happy. Always be happy. No matter what life turns out, then you always say, "Hey, I was happy." You know, so that's always a that's always a, a strategy. You know, that's what very is good advice. Min strategy, Rich. Is that what it is? You know, so uh, right. Very good advice. Okay. Um, so Bruce, I, I wanted to come back a little bit, uh, jump back in time a little bit again. So you took over um, Gerardo, should you have your um, microphone on? Would you mind turning it off, please? Um, so Bruce, you took over from one of the first editors, um, from the first editors, Pierre Dussorge and Nils Norderhaven at the uh, uh, European Management Review, and um, in the editorial piece that you wrote as an introduction in 2006 when you took over, you wrote that many of the top journals in management had been critiqued from being too American or narrow in yeah. their definitions of research. Do you think this has changed over the past 15 years? I think it's changed uh, quite a bit. The, um, I'm not sure whether Europe's changed that much, uh, Luis. Um, so um, hmm. the um, the uh, you know, I was fully in in Europe. I really left the U.S. Um, you know, I lived probably probably 12, 12 13 years of my career was in Europe uh, and elsewhere, in in Germany or in France or in Sweden primarily. Um, and I was involved in you know crossing a pond to go over to England and that kind of stuff. You know, um, so uh, Europe's so great because it has so everything. It's like I always say this to tease Europeans, so I might as well go ahead. I said, it's like, you know, that, uh, what's the name of that, um, not Disney World, but the other thing, Florida, where you go and it's the whole world next to each other. You know, it's like, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, Epcot. The, what's that? Epcot. Epcot, right. So they got Denmark, you got China, you got France, you know, and uh, it's so wonderful. Europe's a little bit that way, like, you know, you know, everyone's pretty close you can take a train to go across three or four borders and things train you know but really you know i you know americans often come to europe we either we're, we're naive and stupid which we which i you know i don't care if we if we actually live up to that uh, so much because naivete is underrated as a quality uh but the uh but um you know also we believe the things like sure why not be united and integrate so european management view was kind of this Run by you know an American came in. Pierre did a very good job. You know there was a lot of national systems rivalry. Of each you know academic systems were particularly organized by countries. Up to this day, it's still that way. Different at the level of the of the MBA programs, but in terms of the national systems, it's that way. Um, so it was hard to organize around these things. You had to go to each. I, you know I had I had to do accreditation things, which is you know. Uh, I don't know if you ever want to be cursed, do, do accreditation, you know, assignments. Uh, and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, so, and then Bologna is still being built up, you know, this, this agreement in the Bologna educational system and degrees and everything. So, so things got, you know, didn't prove a little bit in Europe, but there was a lot of too much, Europe needs to, Europe needs a bigger market to remain Europe. So it was the time of the Americanization of things like what journals count. You know, um, and I believe me, in the first list, SMJ would not have been a journal which counted, or, or you know, Academy of Management journal because they were run by people in the disciplines, et cetera. And people like Hervé Dumez, who's a close friend, who runs the Center for 
of, uh, of, of, uh, of, um, of research and management um, and still does that in a much bigger agglomeration now. Um, you know, people like him argue these cases to make these lists so the journals would actually count, you know. Um, and that's been, you know, in some ways that was first looked bad for the Europeans that American journals came to Europe, but it also had a nice effect on the American journals. That suddenly you saw more and more Europeans and other people around the world who are publishing in these, uh, in these journals. And that's true for, you know, Asian, the, you know, Asian content has increased as well, et cetera. So, um, there has been an internationalization of, uh, of the journals, uh, not because they led it, but because uh, they, had to, they had to follow their readership, uh, basically. Uh, and, that, uh, and that's been a big change for the US, uh, which has been healthy. Interesting, yeah. Um, so in that same editorial, you, get, you went on to give some very good advice on what you were looking for in papers. Um, it's an interesting editorial. I see that Xiao uh, posted it in the, in the chat, uh, you should go and read it. Um, but one of the things you said uh, here was that it was important to clearly state the idea, uh, clear and crisp writing was very important and avoiding what you call proof by citations. Maybe right. you can talk about that in a minute. Um, but then you also wrote that, that the European uh, Management Review, you wanted to see um, uh, research that addressed the important questions of our times to which management uh, can contribute. Now, of course, this was in 2006, so again, 15 years ago. Do you think that we do enough today to address these important question, uh, questions? Do more. I'm sure you do a lot more uh, on it. Um, mm. I have a few thoughts on this. I know, I know we're gonna, we're gonna, we should wrap up soon for questions and answers, yeah, but, absolutely. The, uh, but the, um, you know, evolutionary systems, um, you know, move in a way in which uh, you've got the open territories, and then you've got um, equilibria built, which creates a sustainability in each one of these, these niches. Um, sometimes the niches fail. Um, I'm going to say something which is, is uh, maybe offensive to some people. Uh, it's an area of, 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 of research which I love, and that's organization theory. Um, I think it's, it's never established equilibrium in the management community um, for it's because of its ambivalence about uh, being useful uh, very often. Uh, it changes a little bit, but I think uh, they, you know, if you say, oh, I'm an OT person, I want to teach strategy, but probably in strategy, you are going to have to talk about making money. I mean, you know, someone's got to do it, right? So, um, and um, if you don't want to talk about making money, um, then you can talk about CSR the rest of your career, which also is very important, but it's still, it's never going to be this you know, in the, in the, you can just project out over the decades, that's not a sustainable career uh, uh, as a, as a, uh, as a topic. Um, so you have to think about what that's, that looks like uh, uh, on it, um, which is critical. But what's also happened is that journals themselves, it's not only in, in management, I was just talking to a close friend, Amit Kandawal, who used to be the editor of the Review of Economics and Statistics. It's even also true, Ben Jones at Northwestern is, is, just came out with an article uh, which is floating around on the increasing sizes of teams for doing research. Now we know this from Brian Uzi's work already, but it's true now for economics as well. Well, why are teams getting bigger? You can say they're getting bigger because we're multidisciplinary and things are more complicated. I don't think so at all, you know? I think we're getting bigger because like, you know, our armies are getting more sophisticated. We've moved from the, the, the forests of Germany, you know, uh, 
into modern warfare where we've got you know artillery coming in and we've got doing the econometrics and we've got someone doing the writing and we've got someone handling the reviews etc and so on it's the division of labor in order to be produced uh, to be published uh, and i don't blame anyone you know god if, you know if you're a junior faculty member you have to get published to uh to uh to survive um now we have wise people like heather berry who sits now on boards who will solve these problems for us um but um but it's a big problem uh, on it. And uh, the proof by citation, it was an inverted way to say something here that we probably would benefit, you know, either by more formal verbal reasoning or more formal mathematical reasoning coming in, by which we did not have to use, you know, I cited, you know, um, every major, you know, saint in the Catholic, uh, you know, uh, um, whatever that's, uh, you know, the, when, you, when you walk into the, uh, into the wonderful European churches uh, as, uh, as evidence. So uh, Schumpeter did say creative destruction, but like Bob Solo said, um, that was great. We should take out Schumpeter, you know, once every year, parade him around the, the Italian village and then put him back in the closet and then go on doing the rest of our, of our, of our work. And Max Weber was a long time ago. I mean, you know, um, so, uh, and a lot of other things like that. Um, the miss, you know, they do things like, you know, citations, you know, people was, might spell my name K-O-G-U-T, right? So make a mistake, it happens, a type of randomly it happens, but then it becomes systematic because no one reads the articles, they just read the citation thing, which gets replicated in the overall uh, thing. I'm, not, I'm happy to be cited no matter if you, please cite me even if you spell my name wrong, I'm, I'm happy for that. But the, but, the, but the larger point here really is that, um, we're gaming, right? We're gaming the whole, the, uh, the system. Um, and, it's, and I'm real concerned that the influence of psychology, since I've already said something about OT, uh, is not a good, it's not a good model for, for a lot of things. Uh, psychology has had, had this system of production of, of knowledge, you want to call it that, for a long time, large teams of people, lots of articles produced, et cetera, and so on. And they've had, maybe it's because it's easier to detect, they've had an extremely high rate of uh, a failure to replicate of p hacking and etc which is a real problem and we're not taking that seriously enough we are not taking that seriously enough in the way uh the way we are evaluating ourselves in so many different different places it's a bit of a bummer what i just said we we are a fantastic community of people we deserve to drink beer at least once a week or any non-alcoholic substance which looks like beer that's fine too um but nevertheless we shouldn't celebrate the fact that we've learned to create teams of well-armed people who cause fear and, and, uh, and panic in the ranks of reviewers and journals to force them to accept their articles uh, just because they had more citations than the other, than the other article next to it. Hmm. Just trying to stimulate you guys a little bit, you know, so I hope I've, hope I've done that. I, I am sure you're doing that. Jing Ning, did I do okay? says yes cold calder got terrible thing to do. <laughs> there you go so so bruce i want to um i want to come back to some of your work um because as we said i said in the beginning you've worked on such a broad range of topics um and some of the work that you've done that people may be less familiar with deals with social engagement and i guess it also speaks to a lot of things you've talked about already wanting to have an impact and and um, make a difference with your work so maybe you could tell yeah. us a little bit more about that so, you know, I want to say a quick thing. 
you know, I'm in the sociology department as well. I never took a sociology class. I'm so happy they let me in, you know. So it's nice to be have that window on social sciences and be invited to those parts of the university which don't like business schools. I just keep myself real low in the in the room. Um, I don't talk about money, the um, but the um, and that's been a great journey too um, to have that liberty to talk to different audiences. It's costly to do those things, by the way, extremely costly because you have a lot of learning. But if you you picked up from me, and I know many of you, if not all of you, feel the same way. Learning is always sustains careers. You want to sustain a career, you have to love to learn. That's the whole. That's the whole thing. But the um, and that's been great. And you know, you can see from what you, what you gave earlier the kind of things which I'm which I'm doing on. But we underrate teaching as a way to diffuse knowledge. Uh, and um, and teaching, I think, as you get older, gets to be particularly rewarding. Um, maybe because we don't care as much about whether or not they, they, they love us every day, as long as they love us almost every day. Uh, so, um, and uh, it's nice getting, you know, I have students, you know, who have done, you know, some remarkable things, and as, as all of you have done and will have in your careers. And that's extremely rewarding. And the people I do remember the most, you know, as you will maybe too, but not all of us, you don't have to, but there are great business leaders too. And I know some of those people, huh? particularly in developing countries. And I think that there's nothing better you can do in, in general to help societies than create jobs, by the way. I mean, we should never, we should never get embarrassed that we're teaching business to people who are creating jobs uh, and uh, hopefully creating wealth creation, which is shared by society at large. We should never back away from that. So I, I want that to be clear, you know, this thing about, you know, I need my, some of my credentials. I'm not really in the business school because I'm, I do CSR, you know, or CSR is great. I'm not picking on CSR. We also have to do the rest. But we may not do it through our research always, you know. Um, and, you know, our journals often don't let us publish things which other journals did. We were so late in talking about so many things which already were discussed in sociology and economics just because it didn't fit someone's theory. We shouldn't give a darn whether it fits the resource-based view of the world or the, or the knowledge verse. We just should look at sometimes at what some important issues are. And surely one of them has to be, you know, the studies which we see happening now, you know, in the villages of India, you know, microfinance, which is, we still have amazingly few articles talking at that level of analysis, which, which, which Duflo already won her Nobel Prize for in economics, you know. Um, and uh, this is, and I think these things are, are holding us back. So I am happy to say I have done that work. I haven't found it hard to publish this kind of work, but I don't care because there are other ways to make the contribution, such as the enterprise, uh, social enterprise program, Louise, which you mentioned so kindly at, um, mm -hmm. at, um, at INSEAD. Um, I was able to run programs to train the, the ANC of South Africa twice in the 1990s. You know, I was lucky enough to run a, uh, a program for the uh, Rothschild Foundation for Muslim, Jewish, and Christian dialogue. You know, I went to a mosque, got down on my knees, you know, and you say, I got it. This is, a, I got why this is a world religion. It's a personal experience as well as experience of the people. And I'm still in touch with, you know, Zachariah in Paris, uh, who writes me about what his business is doing, et cetera, or working in the, the suburbs of Paris. So, 
we have such opportunity in our careers. I am proud of the research that I do. I'm a little, like all of you, I'm a little bit obsessed by it and so on. But I'm also very proud of the fact that I was able to touch people's lives, maybe help them a little bit, and they helped me as well. Uh, and, uh, and make some sort of contribution through them uh, onto society. I just think that's, that's a great part of what we, of what we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right, um, so we're fast running out of time here because I wanna allow that people can ask questions as well. Um, but I, I want us also just to talk about some getting, getting to know you a little bit more. And we talked about sure. your favorite Swedish dessert or Chinese dessert. Maybe you can share with us your favorite dessert. I already <laughs> well, go ahead, Louise. That was your question? Yeah, yeah, you can answer that question. We'd love to know your favorite dessert. I do like those, those salty plums from... Um, China's a big place, so maybe it only comes from the Canton area. I don't know, but uh, that used to be the... That used to be uh, where uh, people who came from China were usually from the Canton area when I grew up. Now they're from everywhere, but there's more from Canton in those, those days. That was great. I don't think this, you know, I think Swedish desserts are just, they have the, one of the highest consumptions of sugar in the world, the Swedes. Uh, if you ever walk into a Swedish store and you can see this, um, if you go to Ikea, you'll see this, you get these little candy boxes and you put your hand and you pile it into your, what used to be the Saturday candy which is now the, the, the everyday candy um, with a, a pure sweet. So, um, no, Louise, I, I, think this, I think the Danes, I think the Danes went here. They got just great. great well, well, I told you, I'm married to a Swede, so we have Saturday candy at our house. <laughs> and we go to Sweden to buy it, like many Danes do, because it's cheaper in Sweden. So they make go. a date over there. Yeah. All right. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit, um, how have you been managing in the last year? What do you do when you're not working, obsessing about your research? What do you have some hobbies or other things um, that you like to do? Yeah, the, um, you know, uh, I like, uh, so we're, I'm a family oriented guy. I've got, you know, and, you know, many ways to enjoy life. So people can enjoy it, you know, all kinds of ways. I have lots of colleagues who are, who are bachelors in, uh, for, you know, for always, you know, they're into their 50s and they seem to be having a lot of fun and so on. But for me personally, um, I like having, a, I like having a family, um, you know, and, um, and having, you know, spending time, time with, you know, being lucky enough that they don't hate us too much. They don't hate us. They like us. We get together and COVID and we, like many people, COVID, we found that was a really incredible resource if you were lucky enough. Um, to have that, you know, ability to spend more time with your kids, even when you thought they were, they were out of the house and and uh, and gone. Um, uh, so, and my mother's one of these kids. I told you already. So we had a lot of cousins. So it's you know, it's lots of lots of things to uh, to enjoy in that uh, in that way. You know, I did like you know, I like I like sports. I like skiing. I like biking. Uh, I uh, hitchhiked around the U.S. and Canada when I was seventeen and nineteen. Or I had a backpack and I didn't go into the train station. I went up the mountains, um, went up to the Rockies, to the, you know, through, uh, you know, to Canada, to Jasper and Banff, uh, to, uh, to, you know, over to, to the Okinawa, Okinawa Valley where I, you know, and back through, you, I think, you know, nature, you know, how can you not love nature and get out there and so on? Though I know that a lot of New Yorkers don't like a lot of New Yorkers bring their high heels to the uh, to the mountains, but uh, but we actually enjoy that. So that's I, that's that's important to me. And of course, you know, I like 
culture. So I do, you know, I do like that. That sounds nice. So you've been able to get out despite the pandemic and do some hiking or? If you got inside the cities, you could, you know, pretty remote, you could get onto a, a bike and some road and, and do that. And that was, for me, that was a godsend to, uh, to, have, to have that chance, yeah. That sounds nice. Very good. All right. Um, so I'm going to ask people if you could, if you have questions, please put them in the chat and uh, we can uh, post those questions. We have someone who's asking you, um, how would you advise new junior faculty and students to go about looking for funding? Um, for example, if, if someone is in, based in India, it's extremely scarce to get um, funding uh, or scholarships. Is, uh, is there a name attached to that, uh, Louise? To the question? Sushan Bhagava. Okay, Thanks for asking the, uh, the, uh, the, the question, Sushant. Um, that's great uh, to do that. And I hope, I hope your family's all well in, in India and your, uh, and your, friends, uh, your friends too. The, um, uh, business schools, uh, some of them have money. Some of them have a lot of money. Um, some of them have a lot of money, but use it for reasons none of us entirely understand either. So, you know, um, and that includes, you know, uh, Columbia. NCI always wanted to be a, a ranked research in, uh, center of the world. So they always gave lots of generous funding to research, you know, which a lot of people didn't do because they were, some of them were off doing, you know, other things to execute and that kind of stuff. It was, I must say something, I loved NCIAD, but I just want to make that as a real quick thing on the side. NCIAD is just, it's like a family, you know, who argue all the time, uh, but they have this thing, they want to succeed collectively in what they, uh, in what they do. And I really admire that. It's a great experience. The um, U.S., you know, we have. Uh, if you, if you, you, you know, the NSF has has more and more money under Joe Biden. There's more money's coming the way for social sciences and elsewhere. Um, econ has worked out a way to have. Uh, they must have taken, uh, you know, uh, Minyan Zhao's uh, strategy class because um, they learn all about value capture pretty early on. We do all the value creation, of course, right? They do all the value capture um, they, uh, on these things. So NBR is a machine. We need, we need things like that for social sciences. Um, I think, by the way, computational social science, data sciences is a backdoor into getting more money. Um, if you're interested in you know, getting money, you may want to think about things like healthcare right now, uh, about studies in medicine, because um, this is going to be a, this, you know, the U.S. doubled the NIH budget in 1999, and guess what? There were a lot of sociologists that suddenly became health experts in the uh, in the world. Um, so, you know, maybe your research can have something to say useful about about health. Uh, there's increasingly interest, you know, about um, you know uh, things on on stress levels coming out of COVID, uh, which and with international implications. Uh, autonomous vehicles do they raise or lower your stress level? You know, when you walk into Disneyland, you go into one of those, you know, rides going up and down. I, you know, I, I'm the one who screams and closes my eyes and, and uh, say, Monica, next time you take the kids. I can't, you know, when I was, we were younger, I can't do it. Some people love it, you know, you know, uh, could be that, you know, uh, Rafi and Mitt loves the, you know, the entrepreneur, loves that, that rush of risk and so on. 
but that is going to have you know consequences for health, et cetera. What's going to be the responses of firms to these issues? Uh, aging is is critical. See, Rafi's right there. You know, he's already probably has a portfolio <laughs> heavily weighted in the health industry. The, um, yeah. So, um, uh, so I would not hesitate to to think a little bit pragmatically about where money is going to be allocated in funding uh, as a way not to say, hey, I'm going to be a health expert, but what what, what can I you know do to contribute to these issues and and make a uh, a difference on them or and maybe help me mm -hmm. help with my career as well. I, I would not hesitate on that. And the Europeans, yeah. since they're never going to pull together, is going to have constantly the European Research Council stuff, giving out too much money to uh, for projects and uh, building teams. Uh, um, but so if you're European, I'm not worried about you, Louise. I think this CBS, your CBS, not my CBS. Uh, you historically had a good a good bucket of money for research uh, for research too, if I if I recall. That's true. That's true. And we have good private foundations in Scandinavia that we can apply for money from. So Xiao has, has uh, reminded me that we need to do a, a screenshot of everybody. So, so Xiao, do you want uh, ask, to ask everybody to put on your put on there? Yeah, put on your pictures. Come, put come on live. your cameras and smile yeah. for the camera. And then Xiao will take a picture. We're going to come back to more questions after that. Thank you. Um, OK, thanks, everyone. And one, two, three, Patrice. Awesome, got it. Thank you. Thank you Back to you. You know, Zhao was a uh, PhD student at uh, at, uh, at Columbia Business School, and she just did such amazing work, and she still does. Uh, one of the first people to do really interesting social work uh, using non-market strategies. It was really good advisor. Felix was a good advisor, I think, so, uh, and other people too. She's doing great work, and she's also we were also very lucky to have her on the STR team. She's doing great work with us. Right. Sure um, so, uh, Rich Macadot wants to make some noise here. You have a question, Rich. Do you want to put on your microphone and ask your question? I, I, I don't actually know what the question is to ask, but uh, can you comment on your, on your interview with John Oliver? I thought Rick was going to say, Bruce, did you ever work at that problem when you ran the regression on, uh, on data, which you forecasted already to be a so Rick was Rick gave me the hardest time on one on one uh, one project, you know, and, oh. and you know, and it was so good, you know. But I never forgot Rick for that particular discussion. It was a healthy, you know. You, you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember it at all. <laughs> no, God, you know. So I talked to you later about the you know about the uh, hazard model with inverse you know Gaussian stuff and so on. You don't remember? Oh, okay, you know? yeah. So he was so much younger, but he left this impression in my life about going. Uh, oh going my goodness! So Oliver, you know, Nitin Noria, who I knew as a um, PhD student, um, we invited to Warden uh, when he was in his one more year to go before he finishes thesis. Never, uh, never done that ever again. Uh, to a, and when he came and he went on the job market, he said, "Not interested in Warden. I've already been there." I said, "You know, I'm never going to do that again." But I always, I always uh, followed because Nitin was, was obviously, you know, a star, uh, uh, you know, candidate. But not surprisingly, he stayed in Harvard, as, especially in those days. Even more, Harvard would send out their people to be tested, and then they would hire them, you know, to stay at at, uh, at, uh, at Harvard. He came up with this thing on um, giving a, a certification to MBA students, maybe when he was dean, just before he became dean, 
uh, certification where they would be tested just like accountants are tested and lawyers are tested for ethics, you know. Um, so, um, you know, kind of honesty among thieves sort of, sort of, uh, you know, a strategy. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I didn't actually really have strong opinions on it. Off, I just didn't think it would it would work particularly well because I had been asked by Bloomberg earlier. I was running this ethics center at at, at, at CBS, which was a trip. Uh, for, who calls you up for not only for advice but for to be, you know, to be forgiven for all the sins they they have done in their lives too. Uh, but so um, so, they, so Bloomberg called up and they wanted to, they had the Bloomberg screen and they wanted to put and while you're trading. They wanted to put up a kind of a an MBA program in the corner of the screen. You imagine this, and one of them was going to be the ethics. And you know, so what would you teach people in ethics? You know, Aristotle. You know, I'm the you know, golden mean. You know, you know, uh, you know. Uh, you get to utilitarians. Uh, you get down to Kant. You know, everyone's favorite. You know, deontologists. We are deontologists. You know, don't use that word on 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 working people, you know, but uh, it doesn't work at parties, but we are deontologists, um, people who believe in the in rules and the consequences of rules on society and that kind of stuff. You know, smart people will, will ace that exam. You know, you can you can give that to, you know, to, uh, you know, the CEO of, of Goldman, he will still pass that exam, but I wouldn't count on him being a particularly ethical individual. I don't see any Goldman Sachs employees here, so I'll, just make that comment to you. Um, uh, and nor do I know really whether Larry Fink at BlackRock, which I think BlackRock's amazing company is, is particularly great, although he did graduate from the, the high school next to mine, another public uh, school. So all these things are great. Came to us to decide on this issue. I was already not big on this idea of certification, but I got a call and they said, look, Harvard is not willing to give us any rooms or professors to deal with this issue? Would you do it? And I said, sure, you know, I would do it. And don't forget, my dean was Glenn Hubbard, who was on the inside job, who did not like anything on ethics and finance. You know, you, you know. So I was kind of always a little bit of a, you know, a a, a, a problem. So ethics was a problem. Uh, uh, now this is being recorded, so but let it be recorded. Uh, but I had did it anyhow. And they came in with the cameras, you know, and I had two kids who were of college age and they thought it was the coolest thing in the world to be doing, you know. And I have a mother who never really believed that academics is worth anything, you know, except for accounting, you know. And uh, so I did it for, you know, for all those people. And it was two hours and they ended out what they thought was ridiculously stupid to show the world. And they got rid, rid of the, uh, the rest. It's only one thing I refused to do is when I said, you know, um, you know, John, I have a joke. And he says, well, well, tell us the joke. And also I stopped and I realized I really don't want my joke recorded. You know, he, he might be better at this than I am. So, uh, but uh, <laughs> students loved it. And uh, it was a fun, Rick was a fun thing to do. So, you know, uh, Rich, it was, it was, it was fun. You, you seemed, you seemed kind of uh, surprised in the video that, you know, that got aired. I yeah, played I my part. I played my part, Rich. Okay. You know, you know, we're all actors a little bit, you know. So, um, you know, I kind of knew I was. I knew my job was was. I had to take the fall one way or another, right? <laughs> so I might as well be an accomplice to the whole thing. You were the straight man. Straight man. I had to just make sure it wasn't the hardest fall, you know. So another, 
you know. I'll put a link to the video in the chat if anyone. Yeah, I was going to say we'll have to go watch that video as well now. Bruce, there, there are two young scholars in the chat asking. One of them is asking about the problem of focusing your research when there are so many interesting topics. I don't know if you're the right person to ask. And the other one is asking uh, about managing the scope of their research interests so they have you have long longevity in academia so they're related questions basically about how do you choose what topics to focus on and um uh, and i guess especially at the beginning of your career so one we have one question here from anti and the other one is from nikisha the uh so yeah i, I can't advise you to do what louise just described uh in terms of what portfolio and i remember going to university of maryland and uh i think it was david w w Wastepack, uh who gave me a good advice a little bit too late that my, uh, my that I was not optimizing my career, um, and there's some truth to it's some truth to that, because uh, there's a book I always wanted to write back in the '90s on when I wrote articles on that, on diffusion of practices, etc., which is you know you give up things. It's a trade-off in what you what you do, and you have to figure out who you are and what you want to trade off, and you know what you're trying to accomplish in your in your in your life. Uh, you know, some people want to just be really good, um, you know, successful in the in whatever hierarchy exists for prestige and fame or success in within academics uh, on that. And like, you know, for, for for your parents or for your family, you know, you can come back from. Uh, you, it might be, you know, you become the the chair of your department, which we always know is the worst job in the world to take because they have to deal with us. You know. Um, but it sounds good. You're a chair of the department or I'm a dean of the whole thing. Maybe that's what you want. So, so you can't, you, advice can only be tailored on this. I, I will say that there's certain things you have to ask your, what the costs are. So when I switched to doing more complicated stuff on networks, um, circa 1999, 2000, small worlds and so on, all of a sudden I realized I was talking to physicists. And I must say, the level of competition at the technical level increased a little bit more than I had anticipated. Um, so I enjoyed it. You know, I have books on my shelves. You know, you know, learning physics and all that stuff, which I love to read. But you know, I was not going to publish an article in Physica. You know, it's not even their top top journal anyhow for them. Um, so you know, it was a bit of consumption as tenured guy, um, but it's a costly thing to do as well. So you. You do have to think a little bit, a little bit practically about about what you're up to. The only time I really thought very practically was when I went up for tenure, and um, I was able to stay. I have a, a year extra on my clock. This is a trick now, which everyone does, because I came a little bit later to start the program, uh, the whole thing. And I'm really happy I had that extra year. I'm happy I didn't get, you know, cocky and say I want to go up now, you know. Uh, took my time on that. Thought about which ones would be published in the journals most clearly. Colin Kemmer, maybe it's a name which means some means something to many of you. Gave me the the advice that when you get back a review to drop everything else in your life and just do the damn review to get it published as quick as possible. So if you're pre-tenure, you really are. This is your time to be an optimizing animal. You drop all other brain cells. You know, get rid of everything else in your brain. You're just going to be an animal, and you're trying to maximize your caloric intake so you can run faster than you ever run before. And that's what you should be, you should be doing. And after that, it's, it's your life to spend. And uh, 
decide what you actually want to do and and uh, and pursue. But um, you know, you can. Yeah, it's just something to think about. Just be be pragmatic. If that if having a job, if being a tenure means a lot for you, which maybe it should not mean that much to you, but it means a lot to you, then uh, then you should be optimizing very carefully, given that you have a, a deadline. Yeah, Heather has a, a follow up question. I think to to this discussion, could you ask this question, Heather? Oh, I'm sorry, you were going to call me. Okay, um, so I think you stated, Bruce. I think you stated something like CSR is not a topic that's sustainable over a career. Maybe I misheard you, but I think I yeah, heard. That's what I said. Can you can you expand on that, especially for people who might be focused on that topic right now? I, I think it's a great thing to be focused on um, because it's uh, has a lot of energy. So. One thing I left out is that I always think you should, if it's not too expensive to do so, you should gravitate to areas which are intellectually, I can use the word hot, but hot sounds like, you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's superficial. But, you know, I just got lucky to be at MIT when continuous time finance was breaking out. You know, it had a big effect on me. You know, Tim, Tim gets it. You know, I would not have known options. When I got to Wharton, you know, the idea of, of, of thinking that way was still very, very different than the discounted cash flow way of talking finance here, which by the way was the first class I taught it was at Stockholm was, was in finance. So that's how I walked in. And, uh, and that was a great background. But what, why should I have done anything else when you had Robert Merton, you had Fisher Black, you had, you know, Stu Myers there. I mean, you, you know, you should try if you if you if you want to, particularly when you're a doctoral student, you you have the time and and the drive to do it. You should learn a little bit along, you know, along along the way, uh, uh, Heather. So, you know, that was really critical. And we went to Wharton, you know, with Sid Winter. You know, we went to NCI and it was social enterprise. And back here, it became I think building one of the best strategy groups we have in the country around behavioral economics and also I think increasingly more about uh, computational uh, social science. So this makes sense. CSR, you know, I don't think it's of this depth what I just described to you right now. Um, this is not like a, you know, it, it's a topic which the world badly needs. It suffers from an ideological balance. There's too many liberals who do this uh, in the management field. There are too many conservatives who do that in the accounting field. And econ is probably split on the whole. Uh, on the whole thing, but I don't. I, you really have to persuade me that a CSR article is good science, given the ideological uh, motivations which people walk into doing that. So when Vanessa Burbano, my really great, great, great colleague, came up with an article now publishing Management Science that um, CEO activism is not always a good thing, I said to Vanessa. I believe you on that one, Vanessa. I really because that's exactly opposite what she what she had been publishing up to that up to that point. CSR has yet to migrate to something which gives me that confidence that people are not ideologically motivated or not career you know career driven, knowing that the reviewers are ideologically uh, motivated. But when we get past this point, and the world gets greedy once again, or maybe because of climate change, Heather, it's less until we all disintegrate into whatever we're gonna is gonna happen. Uh, but normally but I don't think that's gonna last two that would normally not last two or three decades. And I can prove that to you because you'll see that people talked CSR 30 years ago. They talked it back in the 30s. 
you know, what was the human relationships, human relationship uh, uh, school, which came out of Harvard and the Hawthorne studies. And they talked about it back in England, the period of time. Partnerships were built out of religious ur uh, urge to uh, create better forms of sharing the wealth among uh, people who belong to the, uh, to the firm. It was a religious movement, truly a religious movement. Um, so, uh, you know, why, I don't think this is a, it's a cyclical, I don't, I don't see it as a sustainable uh, area of, uh, of But if it is truly close to someone's heart and that is what they are very interested in, then you, you doing sort of good research, scientific research, experiments, doing something like it would be make sense for someone to pursue that as a career if it's something that they really feel strongly about. I, a, yeah, I agree with you. Yep. you want me okay. to say that? Want me to say that? I'll say that. You know. You should, you oh no, should, I don't. I don't want you to say. Should that. Definitely be, <laughs> should definitely be happy, Heather. Yeah, exactly. I'm just, there's tension across some of the advice here. I'm just trying to make sure people are. My world advice is be happy and make others happy. So okay. I'm, not here, I'm not here to make anyone miserable on this issue. But, you know, you. I, someone wrote, someone, someone came out in a competing YouTube thing to, uh, uh, to the amazing Rick McIndock uh, uh, channel. And that is uh, the passion is overrated. We always say follow your passions. No, 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 no. What you really have to think about is, I'm, I, I'm, I got this, humans develop brains late, right? And late into life, the brain is still, is still, you know, growing up until, you know, for men, I don't think certain parts of the brain ever fully develop, but we all know about that problem. But the generally, otherwise, it, and then at some point your brain begins to decay. And I, by the way, I, you know, I'm a certain age, I read very carefully what parts of your brain decays and what does not, you know? What goes? What how how much how much it sustains in terms of careers or what can be done? And when you look at averages, you also when you get older, you'll start looking at variances and say, "Oh, there's a variance. I want to be in that part of the distribution." So what do I do, you know, I do what my 96-year-old mother does. I eat nuts and 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 and, and berries, and uh, and lots of uh, and lots of yogurt, that kind of that kind of stuff. So you can do all that stuff, Heather. You know, you can you can be wise about how you think about your career. But if you want to have a learning career where you expand as a person, I'm so happy that I ran into Bob Engels when I was at MIT, who did not teach me econometrics. And, and I wish I had Uber, but he was, he was not Uber either. He really taught me the fundamentals of mathematical statistics. So happy he did that. Because you had that basis early in your career, when new things happened, you say, oh, that's using the exponential. And oh, you know, that's using the exponential. Why are they using the exponential in, the, in, these, uh, in these things? Or there's something called a power law. I mean, so this is what I would argue for. And I don't think CSR has that sort of depth, either in the technical side or, but maybe on the philosophical side, it will. It no, thank you for expanding. And I completely agree with you. Learning for life is really the key, in, in addition to happiness, but continuing right. to learn. And I'm trying to say these things with a little bit of provocation because that's what people remember. So it always works. Well, hopefully that's why we're academics because we're interested in learning and continuing and to learn. And provoking Louise. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, I agree. Um, so we're running fast out of time, but I wanted, um, Tim Falter had two questions here, but you recently mentioned the Hawthorne experiments and he's also asking if you could tell us about the work on, on replicating yeah. the Hawthorne I want to say one thing real quick. I don't, I don't want you mm -hmm. to walk away thinking that I, by any means, trivialize the overall social challenges we have in general. That's not what I said, okay? So all I said is a little area, and 
and maybe it's because I actually don't believe, I don't believe corporations are really good or bad. I just, you know, they're actors in the economy. I want you to want to clear that. I think we as people, so maybe this was Louise gave me an opportunity to say that more clearly earlier and I, I blew it. We have a big obligation to make sure that we are addressing in our lives and in our careers, major social issues, you know, Heather. So that's, that's, that's for sure. And that's not, that's sustainable. You know, that's not a, that's a different, uh, different issue on the whole, on the whole, uh, on the whole thing. So uh, Tim was asking me, uh, Luis, again, uh, could you prime me again on? About the work on replicating the Hawthorne experiments. So the, um, a lot of us are, are aware that um, we've been um, working with uh, numbers for uh, um, when they exist and that the speed of finance over management has been so much greater than ours because they have data, they have numbers, right? And not numbers, not numbers not even at the second level, at the millisecond level these days to, to do that. We don't have that, you know, trade or whatever it is you want or measures of happiness. We don't have that data on that. The humanities often became the best, you know, look at movies on AI, artificial intelligence. Look at how much wonderful movies came out discussing AI, the issues for ethical choices of that, you know, machine, which had to decide whether or not terrible, terrible motif of a, whether to, to bomb a city or not bomb a city as an assassination and the ethical choices made back and forth. They were, that's 10, 12 years old. We, didn't, we weren't even close to those things. Humanities was particularly rich on that, but would never persuade each other on those, in those, those areas. But we now have the ability to go back in time if, if the extent we can't record voices, maybe someday we will gather the radio waves of Lincoln talking, you know, in some, you know, other galaxy, you know, solar uh, in, the, in, the, in the existence. But we don't have that ability, we do have text. And uh, text is, is, is data now. We, our tools for using it is still incredibly crude, incredibly crude. Um, and, uh, but we can't do that. Um, we have photographs. We're very good at facial recognition, a little bit too good. We have 99.9% .9 ability to recognize trained, trained algorithms to, uh, to identify faces uh, on that. So this is just exploding over it. Hawthorne was a out, a, came out of Germany in the application of science to the social sciences in the late 1870s, 80s, et cetera. And they went on to found the, as Germans came to the US, they founded the major psychology journals. It's really interesting. Hawthorne was built upon that aspiration. The same things the Germans were doing 50 years ago, lighting issues, rest breaks, you know, et cetera on that. And they all had this data and this, they came out with the Hawthorne effect saying these experiments didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter because they could never find any, any result uh, on the whole thing. But people's productivity kept on increasing like they increased in that Norwegian firm back in uh, at Herndal, which used to be called the Herndal effect, these sort of learning, these learning curves. But now we actually have data to look at people's, the, uh, these five operators, they also did survey, uh, surveys overall and look at what they actually said to each other 
you know, what their interviews were, what they were saying to each other. This is, um, um, and there's other kinds of data like that, you know, existing. The Germans have lots of data of diaries of workers. This German history has been on that, social history has been on that for a long period of time. And so historians are now beginning to learn how to do this. So that's a huge thing for us, you know, and we're going to do it terribly. We're going to do it so badly, it's going to be embarrassing. You look back upon it. The algorithms are miserable on the whole thing, but we'll get better. We'll have collective learning on the whole thing. And uh, just a new, it's a new frontier. So uh, we're looking at the Hawthorne papers, the interviews, um, and, uh, and using that as a way to, to see if not in, this is another story going on other than what these five very clever women were doing, saying to these very, very silly men in these interviews, largely men, women occasionally too. But they manipulated these guys that you cannot believe. And hopefully, you know, their moods, their attitudes, their, their solidarity will come out in their interviews in the text, which was not what the uh, scientists in the room were collecting uh, as, uh, as well. So that's the aspiration of the project. I want you to know, I very rarely ever talk about what I'm working on because I, it, my failure rate is extremely high on projects. And it also makes me nervous doing that too because it sounds like I actually know anything. I don't know anything this time. But that's, I will, but since um, you asked me and so it's Tim and uh, Louise uh, read it to me. Uh, Louise knows how much I value her, uh, her uh, partnership over the years. I answered the question, so, uh, so that's my response. We appreciate that, thank you. So it sounds a little bit like you're coming back to some of the earlier German roots. It's coming full circle. Coming back to your you stay, stay in Europe had a, a big influence on you, as you said earlier. You know, I, 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 as you know, I adore, I adore Europe. Hmm. And, so and you think that makes, yeah, no, I guess I heard you say, maybe say earlier too, that, that sort of having spent time in different places also opens perhaps up your mind to uh, looking at different things and different topics and from yeah. different perspectives. Right, you know, I mean, so I'll close, maybe we're closing here around here, but you know, in our classes, China comes up. We should be really careful what we say about China, really careful. Not only because for spooky reasons, you know, uh, which is true. And they, as, as it is for in general, you should be careful these days in what you say, but also because we're going to miss, we may, we miss, there's so much misunderstanding in the whole thing. And our students often come from China. Either they're studying here or they're or online. They're actually in China taking our classes. And we're having these discussions uh, on, the whole, uh, on the whole thing. So this is a good time to, as a counter cyclical sort of investment on our parts, make sure we're even more attentive to the to globalization in the positive sense, but even more importantly, to the intercultural aspects of our, of our, uh, of what we do. Um, you know, um, it's manifest destiny right now for, uh, for China. Um, there will be mistakes made as we have made, we Americans have made our mistakes as Europeans have made the mistakes. Um, and that's gonna last for the next decades or two or three decades. Um, so, it's really important that we build the bridges out uh, to them ahead of time. And I'll give you one last story, Louise, and I'll leave you alone. At the end of World War II, they had a, there was a meeting of the leaders of the European countries. There was Gaspari from Italy. There was Schumann from, uh, from, uh, from, uh, from France. There was uh, 
the uh, Scandinavian delegates as well, who were all trained in the German language. And that's what they spoke in. They spoke in German at the, after the end of World War II for that particular language. So we're going to be in that area with great problems if they go forward. But we have to really understand that we need to create a Latin um, to, to allow us to communicate with, uh, with each other. I know it's a heavier answer than you wanted. Um, but that's how I see uh, one of the major, uh, major challenges facing us right, uh, right now. Mm. Europe, Europe, right. Can be a good, Europe can be a good model. Let's hope so. All right. Thank you for that. Um, and I would be happy to be talking to you for the rest of the evening. Uh, it's evening here. It's morning where you are. Um, but thank you so much, Bruce, for, for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, Thanks, Bruce. Zhao, uh, thank you for um, organizing. You'll tell us when the next uh, Meet the Scholar interview is. But, um, but Bruce, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for um, joining us today and for asking good questions. Thank you so much for asking me. It really is a great honor, um, particularly since it came from, from uh, Zhao and, and Louise and Tim and all, all the rest of you. Thanks, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Zhao. All right.